This morning we're going to look at John chapter 16 and look at the hour that's mentioned here in John 16. Our focus is really going to just look at the first four verses. I'll give you the context of it. But I want you to note in John 16, in verse 2, it mentions something about an hour, an hour that is coming, and then in verse 3, their hour comes. So here Christ is speaking to his disciples, remember, in chapter 13, all the way through his high priestly prayer in chapter 17. He's with the disciples in the upper room. He's teaching them final words before he will die on the cross on the next day. Very important time. And here he mentions something about an hour and an impending hour that has come. It's going to come very shortly. And in our reading, then we can conclude this hour that he's talking about has come. It has already come. In the Gospel of John, this phraseology about an hour, particularly related to Christ, has been a common theme. If you remember all the way back in chapter 2, when Jesus was asked by his mother to perform what's thought of as the first miracle, the water and wine in Canaan, she wants Jesus to do something about it, and he reminds her that his hour has not come. And so he's careful not to engage in broad public miracles at this point because it will, it will create such a uh, chaos of, 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 of folks clamoring together that uh, he doesn't want to be uh, in that quite kind of limelight yet because his hour hasn't come. His hour that he was talking about that hasn't come for him and that would be his death. His severe persecution, if you will, his suffering, his passion, and his death on the cross. In chapter 7, as you read through this gospel, again, there in his ministry early on, it, it continues to escalate his, his miracles and his work and his word. It becomes more public and more well known. And they were seeking to arrest him. But in chapter 7, in verse 30, it does show, as Isaac mentioned, that destiny is in the hands of Christ, that they would come, seek to arrest him. He would not allow that. No one laid a hand on him, 730 of John, because his hour had not come. This is a, a divine destiny of an hour on a specific day. That would be Passover day. It would be this year. It would be the next day from this passage here in John 16. But in John 7, that day had not come. So Christ was not ready to die on the cross. He taught in the temple in chapter 8, and the same phraseology is used in John 8, 8, 20. It says that no one arrested him there at the temple, although, remember, he overturned the tables. You would think that would be enough of civil disobedience to bring about some sort of arrest, particularly when the guard is stationed right there. But no one arrested him because his hour had not yet come, 730 By chapter 12, things change. 
Now we're at the end of his ministry. His three-year ministry is done, and this hour that hasn't come has now come. 12.23, Jesus answers and said, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. What glory would that be? Glory is simply the demonstration of the beauty of his attributes. And in this case, specifically in his suffering, it would be his grace, his mercy, his love, his patience, his atonement. All of these aspects glorify the Son for this hour that has now come. And in verse 27 of the same chapter 12, his soul is troubled This is a great weight. This is not an easy thing for Christ to endure this level of pain and this level of persecution. And in his prayer, it's communing with the Father. He says, what what am I going to pray? That this hour passes? No, it is for this purpose that I have come for this hour. This was his determined destiny. In chapter 13... Before the feast of the Passover, that's time, which is now, he knew his hour had come. And so in chapter 17, we'll get there in a bit, when he dies on the cross, he lifts up his eyes to heaven, 17.1, and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you. Jesus' hour refers to his suffering, his death, his resurrection, and his ascension to glory. All of that are contained in that hour in which he would be glorified. All of these events have been established, if you will, or ordained by the divine decree of the Father. All of this has been appointed to happen. Jesus accomplishes his divine appointment on time, (laughs) at the right hour. We call this the doctrine of God's providence, how God works all things out according to his design and for his glory. In chapter 16, we begin with Jesus' statement to his disciples there that it's their hour now. Their hour is coming. His hour is now Christ and He will die and it will then be their hour by divine design. What's their hour look like? Well, he began in chapter 15 and verse 18 that there would be great hatred towards those that would follow Christ. That's the hour that now exists. It's the hour that he told them about for them that they would have an hour in which they would suffer and they would receive persecution and for them to actually die as well. And he calls them to pick up their cross and follow him. And beloved, that's Jesus' call to everyone. Follow me. 
And in doing so, you must pick up your cross and follow me and recognize that you're not being summoned to a party. You're being summoned to persecution. Now, there's plenty of churches that have a party going on today that will not be persecuted by the world in which they live. Jesus is not summoning you there. There's someone else. There is a prince in the power of the air of darkness, and he would summon you there. Jesus is summoning you to a different place. Oh, you may not want to come. He will give you fair warning, and he tells you here. In fact, I think we should just read this in the context in which it exists, shouldn't we? I'm going to back up to verse 18 of chapter 15 to be reminded once again of where we're at and what he says and how that applies then when he, when he turns to his disciples and said, you know about my hour, now how about yours? Here it is, verse 18 of chapter 15. If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before you. If you are of the world, and remember, this world is the world system. You can think of it as the culture, whatever, the world, in that sense. If you are of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they'll keep yours. But all these things they will do to you on account of my name. Because they don't know him who sent me. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have been guilty of sin, but now they have no excuse for their sin. This is the, the full revelation of God incarnate in Jesus Christ. What more could God do than to take on the form of a servant and walk among us in flesh? No excuse. Christ has come. He has spoken truth, and all of that has been confirmed by miracles which even his enemies recognize are from God. There is no excuse. There is no excuse. Verse 23, whoever hates me hates my Father also. You cannot hate Jesus Christ and be accepted by God. Sorry. If I had not done among them the works that no one else did, they wouldn't be guilty of sin. But now they have seen and hated both me and my Father. But the word that is written in their law must be fulfilled. They hated me without cause. Jesus is appointed to this divine hour, and he will accomplish it. They will freely, willingly hate him without a cause, and yet... Don't misunderstand, God is providentially over all things, including this, and will accomplish good purposes. And what is that good purpose? That he would be glorified. Shifts into this statement about the helper in verse 26. When the helper comes, that would be the Holy Spirit. When he comes, 
whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. And you will bear witness because you have been with me from the beginning. By the way, the word witness there in Greek, most of you knew, know is the word we use for martyr. Yeah. Eventually, just witnessing meant martyrdom because their hour will come. And Christ will be martyred here in the next, within the next day. So with that backdrop, he says, and then verse 1 of chapter 16, see, he's recapping all of these things I have said to you to keep you from falling away. They will put you out of the synagogues. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he is offering service to God. And they will do these things because they have not known the Father nor me. But I have said these things to you so that when their hour comes, you remember that I told them to you. Let us pray. Father, these very words of Jesus Christ, recorded by your Apostle John, born along by the Holy Spirit, the Helper, our Advocate. May we hear the words of Christ today. May be words of great conviction to cause confession as Lord, comfort to those that may experience trouble sometimes, May they be words of great courage for us to stand in great commitment to the truth of Jesus Christ our Lord. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Jesus concludes in this little section I'm looking at, verses 1 through 4 of chapter 16. It is in context of being hated from the world, as I said. And he says, I've said all these things to you. Now look at verse 4 at the end. I didn't say these things to you from the beginning because I I was with you. He didn't burden them. He was with them. So where was the focus of the hatred? It was on the person of Jesus Christ incarnate. That's where it was. They eventually drug him out and put him on a cross. So, rather than burden his disciples with their appointed destiny, he doesn't tell them during those three years, emphasize what they will go through, alludes to it to some degree, but now it's time. It's time for them to know. Could you imagine what it might be to be a disciple even in that time? And I know we we have the benefit of hindsight of looking back and all that's going on, but put them in that circumstance and then to see all that they had, it it seems to be falling apart. The the harder they work, the more they 
witness and tell of Christ, the more they gather together and worship Christ, the more persecution comes. And and people come in and try to rip them apart. No wonder one who really wasn't of them, Judas, decides to cash it all in and leave while there's still something to cash out on. But for those 11, they're going to face an unprecedented hour of persecution. Their hour is fast approaching and they see what hour they're talking about because Jesus' hour is now and their hour is next. And I want to assure you, beloved, I'm not trying to frighten you. But as Christ would tell his disciples, and as we've noted before, this is not a prayer just for them, and a promise just for them, and a foretelling of what's going to happen just for them. It is for all who would follow Christ Jesus, all who would be a disciple. It is a fair warning. It is a fair warning that your hour has come, your hour is now. That's the Christian life. And be assured, at least in this text, that your faith will certainly be challenged, as theirs was. It will be, and I'll use a modern cliche word, canceled, as theirs was, and literally crushed. Crushed by the enemy. But I want to give you hope. I don't want to sit here and and just tell you all the bad news because the good news is there too. And it's in our text. We won't have time to get to all of it, but I'll let you carry some of that home with you. I wouldn't want you to have a total frown on your face. Look at verse 32. Jesus makes a promise to his disciples. Their hour is coming and, and it Indeed has come, verse 32 of chapter 16 is where I'm at. This, this, is, this is coming. In fact, it has come. In other words, it's already starting. You will be scattered. The scattering is because of persecution, right? You will be scattered each to his own home and, and will leave me alone. Yet I'm not alone for the Father is with me. But I have said these things to you so that in me you may have peace. That's what the promise of Christ is. Will there be great persecution? Will there be a scattering? Will there be a challenge of your faith? Will your faith be canceled? Will your faith be crushed? Yes, but in Christ you have peace. Because in this world, that is the culture, the world system in which you live, you will have tribulation. But take heart, I have overcome the world. doesn't matter what's going on. You will have peace in Christ. You're not going to have peace in the circumstances. And when all that you put together falls apart, Christ has overcome this. This tribulation or persecution is descriptive of the hour that is going to be experienced by all of Jesus' true disciples. Let's consider them from our text with the time that remains. Look at verse 1 of chapter 16. He said, 
Now, I've said all these things, that's all that's preceded, and I think specifically from the point of chapter 13 on, but, you know, as he's teaching his disciples these final words, but most notably from verse 18 and chapter 15 about them being uh, uh, hated or persecuted, This is important that he would tell them that because he wants to keep them from, note verse 1, falling away. This persecution, this hatred, this that they're experiencing in the world, it may affect what's most important and that is their faith. Because their faith is going to be challenged by everyone. Now, some commentators, if you were to read this text, understand this falling away as apostasy. That is, falling away from the faith. Going from belief to unbelief. So, if that's the right understanding, then the point would be the words of Christ are the means by which one would preserve or persevere in the faith and not fall away. I think that's a true statement. I don't think that's so much the emphasis here. And I understand what an apostate is, someone who confesses Christ and then denies him from the heart. Apostates are not Christians. They never were. Apostates are people like Judas in our text. Oh, he might have been in, among, and around. And in fact, he would have been voted most spiritual. He really would. But he wasn't a Christian. John would explain in 1 John 2.19 that they, and he's got Judas in there as well as others, who lead the faith, they went out from us, but they were not of us, for if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they are not of us. I have absolute confidence in this. A true Christian will not ever abandon the faith. He may have a weak faith. He may deny Christ in a temporary moment. Peter is a good example. We'll talk about him in greater detail. The opposite of Judas. Doesn't mean he won't sin. He does sin. But he'd be convicted from the heart and repent and be restored by Christ. That's the difference. They may have a lapse of faith but not abandon the faith like Judas did. Those who are in Christ are not held by their practice of faithful righteousness, but rather the practice of Christ's faithful righteousness. It is the righteousness of Christ by which we are secure and not condemned. We're not secure by our meticulous efforts, but by the Holy Spirit who has sealed those that are in Christ until the day of redemption. Regeneration brings about life to those that are spiritually dead and they'll continue to breathe and never 
fail because Christ lives forever. Put your security in him. Put your security in the promises and the faithfulness of Jesus Christ. In fact, it is that one, Jesus, who made this promise that if you are in me, I will raise you up. Look, if you want to see it, look, I'll read it for you. Otherwise, you could turn 637 and mark it because you may need to look back to that. Great comfort to me where Jesus explains, and I know this is hard for some people to grasp, but these are the words of Christ, so my call is just to believe them. Yes, you must confess Jesus Christ as Lord, And you must believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead. It is really your faith. But it comes about through the miraculous work of God's grace in your heart. And in fact, God planned that destiny and that hour from the very beginning. And that's Jesus' explanation to his disciples in John 6, 37. And he states the security of the believer. And he says, all that the Father gives me will come to me. You know why you come to Christ? You know why you hear the words of Christ right now and you want to confess Christ as Lord and there is an affection for Christ as Lord? It isn't because you're a good decision maker. It isn't because you're lucky. It isn't because you're just somehow skilled better than other people. You're you're maybe a better uh, keeper of doing things right. Not at all. It's because it is a gift from the Father to the Son. And, and why would the Father choose you? Because it shows how glorious He is. Why would God bother plucking me out of the mire I came from and give me to Jesus Christ to be a son? Not any merit I would bring. All I bring is sin. It demonstrates His glory. His glory of redemption. His glory of mercy. Love and compassion. Well, the Father is said to give those that are in Christ as a gift to the Son. And those, whoever comes to Him, those that are given to Christ by the Father, what does He promise? Do you see it here in verse 37? I will never cast out. Beloved, that's why you're securing Christ. Only one reason. He ain't throwing you out. I'm stupid enough to fall out, to jump out, and to do all kinds of crazy things. You've got kids, don't you? (laughs) It's a wonder they make it to teenage or adult. Christ will never cast out. In fact, he tells... For I have not come down to heaven to do my own will, but to do him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me. What is God's decreed will? That's what he's getting at. That I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but I will raise it up on the last day. Hallelujah. You can praise God for his almighty salvation. 
Now I better go on to my next point, maybe. We might get there. But really, here I'd like to read, and I'll just paraphrase here. I'm reminded of uh, opportunities then to preach at the funeral of the saints who have departed this life and are asleep in Christ. One of my favorite passages in 1 Corinthians 15. And if I survive and I preach your funeral and I'm at the graveside, this is what you're going to hear. And if you survive me, I hope you'll preach this to me. Over me, should I say, I'll be heaven. To those that remain. Paul would tell the church at Corinth, I'll tell you mystery. Mystery means something that hasn't been fully revealed. So this is un previously unknown to its fullness. He explains that the believer is just asleep in Christ. He said we shall not all sleep, but we will be changed. In a moment, in a twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we shall be changed. Because Christ has promised, I will raise them from the dead. Would that give you peace and hope in a time of trouble and tribulation and persecution? The dead will be raised imperishable, changed into a, a, a unique body, the perishable putting on imperishable. The mortal putting on immortality. Into where you'll have a dimension of physicality and spiritual dwelling. We can live in both dimensions. This is, this is um, beyond our imagination as he explains it further in 1 Corinthians 15. But here's a statement that I take and I stare at the grave and say death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where's your victory? Oh, death, where's your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Do you know him? That's all that matters. Anything else you know doesn't ultimately matter. That matters. That is the final destiny of everyone. We try to pretty it up and make it look better. Not think about the wretchedness of death and the awfulness of it, but it'll hit us all. You'll have victory only in one person, that is in Jesus Christ and Him alone. And if you know that, then, my brothers, be steadfast and movable, abounding always then in the work of the Lord, knowing that everything else you do in life is vain. But whatever you do in Christ... That's not in vain. Back to our text, this, this falling away is falling away from, I think he's focusing on the idea of being tripped up because of the challenges to your faith. That's what the word actually falling away in 16.1 means. It's falling away because in the sense of being tripped up. The word is often used that way like a stick on a box for a little animal that you try to trap and the animal knocks a stick out, the box goes on, they're in a trap. 
And there's a sense that the persecution and the troubles end up being like a, a trap. And so he wants to explain to his disciples to not be discouraged because of persecution, tribulation, difficulties in this life that might cause you to lose hope and lose confidence, to be anxious and discouraged, which, by the way, all of those are sin. <laughs> I mean, we understand why people are anxious, but he tells us not to be anxious for anything. God who holds all things in the word of his power, calls us to trust in him and have faith, not a lack of faith or unbelief, which is, is sin. The same word is translated here, Jesus' Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5.29, he says, if your right eye causes you to sin, throw it out. That word sin there is the same word here for falling away. That, that's the idea. He has said these things to call his disciples to stand fast in times of anxiety and discouragement, in times of trouble and times of persecution, to stand strong and listen to the promises that Christ has made. There are many. We've gone over just a few. And I'll tell you, one of the greatest ones is, is he says, I'm going to raise you up on the last day. Do you believe it? That's the question. Listen to the words of Christ. And that's why he put them there for us. Number two... 16 verse 2, their faith is going to be challenged. They're going to be tempted to fall away, to not believe and trust because, and again, the word I use here is I, I think it's appropriate for our day that your faith is not only going to be challenged, but it's also just going to be canceled out. And it was in that culture too, and it, and it, it continues. This isn't new. Look at verse 2 of chapter 16. He says, they'll put you out of the synagogues. Indeed, the hour is, is coming when whoever kills you will think he's offering a service to God. He tells them they will be witnesses in the sense of being martyrs. And that's what changed this word to the idea of being killed. You're going to get killed and they're thinking they're serving God. Excommunication here was going on from the culture in which they live. If you remember in chapter 9, Jesus heals this blind man and his parents don't want to get involved with it because of 9.22 it says they were concerned because they might be put out of the synagogue. In chapter 12, there are some religious elite part of the ruling class that confess Christ as Lord and recognize that he's indeed the Messiah, but they want to be quiet about it because they don't want to lose their job. They would be cast out of the synagogue as well. When you read this, they'll put you out of the synagogue. We're probably in our world thinking, oh, so what? If I get kicked out of church, I'll go down the street 
to the next one. They all have different rules and different ideas, and you can just go anywhere you want. Well, that didn't happen then. What happened in their culture is that their synagogues, if you will, were tied to their societal structure. If you got kicked out of the synagogue, that meant you essentially got kicked out of your family, you got kicked out of your job, you got kicked out, you might think of it, of your citizenship. You don't have any home. You don't have any way to make any money. There's no welfare system there to to get you any money or any support. About the best thing you do is is you can beg or or move on to some other lands and maybe try to, as a vagabond, try to make good there. It would have cost them everything. And he's telling his disciples before it happens, guess what's going to happen to you when you follow me? You're going to get canceled. (laughs) They're going to kick you out. This is not something new. This continues. But from this point forward, Jesus emphasizes there's going to be escalation of the hostility. I mean, in the Old Testament, they didn't want to hear the saints. And many of them they stoned or sawed in half. But it's not going to get better, it's going to get worse because, and I think because of the clear explanation of the exclusivity that Jesus demands. No one knows the Father except the Son and those to whom he reveals, Matthew eleven twenty seven. In Matthew 10, Jesus makes it clear in his teaching. In verse 34 of Matthew 10, I'll read it for you. Don't think that I've come to bring peace on to the earth. I've not come to bring peace but a sword. There is a dividing line in Christ and exclusivity about it. In fact, he goes on to say, I've come to set a man against his father and a daughter against his mother and daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law and a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever doesn't take up his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Jesus didn't mince words, did he? Some wonderful plan for your life, huh? The call is to lose your life. But here's his promise. If you lose your life for my sake, you'll find it. The only one who can raise the dead to life. This hour that he speaks of, it it is coming. And Jesus had taught them about this. It is coming. It's coming when those who he would say in our text kills you think he's offering service to God. Your faith is being challenged and canceled, if you will, by those who think that they are Christians. 
Paul's the prime example of it. He thought he was serving God as he ran around and killed Christians and followed them and came after them. And of course at his conversion when Christ came to him, Christ says, why are you persecuting me? Thought he was persecuting the church. The church is Christ. It's his beloved. And the only reason Paul wasn't running around trying to put Christ on the cross because he wasn't around. So instead, he's gone. So the Christians then are being persecuted. And this has been a historical reality from this in great ways and in an escalating way from this point forward. James Boyce mentions this. In the early years, some of the apostles and many normal believers were killed by the Jewish authorities or by Jewish instigation. Later, execution was inflicted by Rome. He's speaking of the government. At first in random fashion and then in a more systematic way. If you think about it, Really, those who truly confess Christ, disciples, you have right there at the beginning, you have this Jewish persecution. They'll put them out of the synagogues, kill them, stone them as they can. Then you've got this Roman government that steps up and does the same kinds of things till Constantine in the 400s. And then after that, the church has so... The, the public church is so apostatized by the 600s that they begin killing their own who confess Christ. We would call that the Roman Catholic Church. For well over a thousand years, one historian I, I read had calculated about 50 million Christians put to death by the Church of Rome. It's Pauline. And then, beyond that, another wave of persecution, not that any of these ended, but it, it continued then under Islam, who killed millions as well, and who continued to do so today in various countries around the world. And if you're not sure, go look at places like Voice of Martyrs. In our culture, we've been spared, we're not that ancient of a culture, just a few hundred years, we've been spared of a lot of violence. It may not continue. But we sure have faced some mockery, intimidation, and an attempt to minimize our voice through what I call cancel culture. In politics, the ideology of quote-unquote politically correct has morphed and drifted into many in that we would consider evangelical and they've become the religiously correct who have adopted all the cultural appropriations towards ideas and ideology who have drank the cup of postmodernism and absolutely spoiled truth. It's going to pick up speed, this downgrade. We've already read some of the texts to the 
Paul told the churches it's going to go from bad to worse. We have been carved out in a fortunate way in our culture for a long time to have much of this evil suppressed and we will pray that it will continue to be suppressed. But don't be too disappointed if you find it to be different. But why does all this persecution come about? Why do, why do they want to cancel the truth of Christ who calls people just to repent and believe? In our text, it tells us the reason why, verse 3, and that's critical. They don't know the Father nor me. It's a demonstration that they don't know God. They don't know Christ. The religiously correct are going to claim to love God, but express it contrary to his divine revelation that was given to his prophets, that was taught specifically by Jesus Christ to his apostles who were inspired to write it down here. And I'll tell you, beloved, one of the first things they'll do is then begin to deny this very word of God. It is fundamental to our understanding of who Jesus is so that we will know who God is. And you may read aspects of this and say, well, I don't like what that says. (laughs) It doesn't make it untrue because you don't like it. It is more likely the problem is with you than this inspired word of God. Paul ran around in his pre-conversion ideology thinking he knew God and thought he was carrying out a crusade for God and accomplishing God's purposes, but he wasn't. He didn't know God and he didn't know Jesus Christ. And many religious institutions will do that. Perhaps some in great violence physically, but also in other ways in which the truth is being suppressed and minimized and canceled to their degree. Your faith is going to be crushed and you should expect it. And I think that might help someone to have peace. If your idea of peace was everything was going to get better and it's starting to get worse, (laughs) then maybe you might have some great concerns. But Jesus said, before this happens, I'm going to let you know what's going to happen. And look at verse 4 in chapter 16. He says, so that when their hour comes, remember I told them to you. I told you so. No, this is their hour. Well, what's their hour? This hour of this evil going from bad to worse, the truth being canceled, faith being challenged in Christ, it is their hour. They're going to stand at the highest pinnacle. Of great success, at least it will seem that way. Their hour is the hour of those who would reject Christ. 
and they think they have the upper hand. The greatest example of it is Jesus Christ on the cross within a few hours. 